the descent into the chaos or the unknown is not necessarily a bad thing. And it's actually, uh, again, an unavoidable part of the journey. It's not only where all threat resides, right? Threat is, it lives in the unknown, but it's also where all novelty lives. So if you're going to discover anything new or create something new, you have to go into the unknown. Hey everybody, welcome to the What Is Money Show. I am thrilled to have you here joining me on my mission to help shine light on the corruption of money. Now, if this is your first time listening to the What Is Money Show, I strongly recommend that you go back to episodes one through nine first, which lays a lot of the groundwork for many of the concepts that we explore on the show. These first nine episodes are my series with Michael Saylor and thousands of people have told me that this is the best podcast series they've ever heard hands down, and that it was instrumental to their understanding of money and Bitcoin. So if you're looking to start a deep dive into the nature of money, I don't think there's any place better that you can start other than episode one of this show. Now, a little bit about this show and how it makes money. The What Is Money show is 100% sponsor based. So all of our revenues are derived from direct sponsorships. And I strive to be very selective about the sponsors that I work with, specifically only using sponsors that I use personally, and also choosing sponsors that have values which are well aligned to the values expressed on this show, such as freedom, education, self-sovereignty, etc. So what I'm going to do now is a few ad reads right at the top of the show, and then I'll do a few more ad reads in the middle. And I hope you'll take the time to listen to them, as again, these are hand-selected sponsors, and I think you'll like what they have to offer. Today's podcast is brought to you by In Wolf's Clothing. Wolf is the first startup accelerator dedicated exclusively to the Bitcoin Lightning Network. Four times per year, Wolf brings teams from around the world to New York City to work with like-minded entrepreneurs, pushing the boundaries of what's possible with Bitcoin and Lightning. The program is designed to help early-stage companies achieve product market fit, develop their brand, secure early-stage funding, and grow businesses that help fuel the global adoption of Bitcoin. So go to wolfnyc.com to learn more about the program or apply. Again, that's WolfNYC, W-O-L-F-N-Y-C.com. Luke DeWolf, welcome back to the What Is Money Show. Happy to be here, Rob. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. This time we're in person. Last time we're on Zoom, uh, we did an overview of Jordan Peterson's book, Maps of Meaning, last time. I don't think we got past the first sentence in the first chapter, other than overviewing the rest of the book. Now we're actually going to jump into the book itself starting in chapter one and chapter one's titled maps of experience subtitle object and meaning and he's talking about um this nature of reality right that all humans sort of deal with we're in the present here and now what is we have some vision of an idealized future like how we would like things to be you know what should be the 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 gulf between the two the difference and then what do we do about the difference right how do we act uh in accordance with with closing the the gap i guess between where we are and what we think should be and i would interpret this through the praxeological lens of right we've got um 
felt uneasiness in the presence, you've got some valued aim in the future, and you're selecting means to pursue the ends of bringing about that idealized future. Um, so we'll be talking about, I think, a lot about these parallels between kind of Peterson's mythological framework and more of a Mises or Misesian praxeological framework. Um, so where should we start here on this topic in chapter one? Well, I think the best place to start here is, first of all, as a bit of a overview of what the chapter actually is, I think it's setting the stage. And so the main thing about this chapter and the first couple of parts of the, the following chapter as well are really setting the stage for the entire thesis of the book, mm -hmm. which is that narrative and narrative understanding is something that humanity has somehow lost by switching to a fully empirical mode of thinking. Mm. That's what's happened in the 20th, 21st century right. to a large extent, or even you can go back slightly earlier than that, yeah. Nietzsche, lots of Nietzsche quotes in this chapter. He was yeah. obviously getting a, a handle on that particular idea. So at the, at the top level, what I, what I think about this chapter to understand this chapter is that it's setting the stage for the concept you just have to understand for the rest of the book yep. to make sense. So he's describing the problem and the problem is, uh, and I'm going to refer to a lot of quotes here. So one, just to start with is no complete world picture can be generated without using both modes of construal, which, which is what he was saying with very first sentence we we looked at the world can be construed as a form for action or as a place of things mm -hmm. so the problem that he's identified is that the form for action is sort of gone from current understanding right and so the the first point that he really makes here across two pages which is convenient we need to know four things what there is what to do about what there is, that there is a difference between knowing what there is and knowing what to do about what there is, that there's a difference mm -hmm. between those two things, and what is that difference. So, okay, this is the, the starting point. This is the starting point of saying that the forum for action point of view here yeah. is this. It's all about yeah, what there is and what to do about what there is. Right. So that's the starting point. Yeah. So again, it's like this materialist worldview that's widely held. Like again, oh, the first line: the world can be validly construed as a form for action or as a place of things. So the form for action would be what's relevant, what matters. A place of things is matter, right? Physical reality, materialist reality, and so. The materialist worldview does not contain the forum for action, basically, like the praxeological viewpoint. Um, and the, but again, again, this book's not about praxeology. We're the ones drawing the parallels here. Peterson's saying more, as I think he's going to get into, there's a neurological and mythological description of this forum for action. So is this kind of like... Mythology is like another way of explaining praxeology in a way. Is it kind of, is this one of those connections that people haven't really teased out between these, these two bodies of work, you think? Mm. 
Well, so mythology is one word for what broadly, more broadly would be just narrative yeah. stories. Yes. What's yes. the point of stories? Why do, why do we identify with superhero movies? Mm -hmm. That's modern day mythology. Mm -hmm. Why do we identify with the Lord of the Rings, things mm -hmm. like that? It, it's, it's that we can see a story and maybe there is something that we pick up on that, mm -hmm. right? But it's not explicit. We see other people see in the case of a movie mm -hmm. or read in the case of a book or if someone's telling us a story, we mm -hmm. hear about what's happened, mm -hmm. right? We hear about a person, a character performing actions, mm -hmm. right? That's the entire structure of narrative. Right. So it abstracts away all of the empirical reality, mm -hmm. right? And the meaning, the lesson from narrative. The moral of the story. The moral of the story yeah. is what we can draw from from that story. Yeah. And and so if if you take a kid who's who's just watching, I don't know, I loved Star Wars as a kid, mm -hmm. like uh not the new stuff, but yeah. but yeah. The original, yeah. The original. And and that is a complete hero story yeah. cycle. Uh George Lucas was a big Joseph Campbell fan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and 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 so I mean that those are things we can dig into a little bit, mm -hmm. but but uh the the main point there is that as a kid watching that movie or experiencing that story mm -hmm. you're not understanding mm -hmm. it in an explicit conscious way mm -hmm. the lessons that you're you're learning but you're seeing someone acting in a way that is heroic mm -hmm. and and i mean this in in the real sense mm -hmm. of that it's it's the meta story mm -hmm. of the hero and so the the details might be different mm -hmm. the setting might be different the mm -hmm. characters might have slightly different nuances to how the thing gets done mm -hmm. But it's a way to point you towards how to deal with the unknown. Right. Every story is something like this. And actually, there, there's a, a point that I think we'll get to in a little bit that there, there are four types of, of myth. I don't want to say them without, without having the page in mm -hmm. front of me, but they all deal with various types of handling mm -hmm. some interplay between the known and the unknown. Right. And so that's what narrative is more broadly. So to, to come back to your question, my view on narrative and mythology, and that has been extremely important to me, is being able to understand the world in mm -hmm. a way that is different from the so-called empirical reality. I mm -hmm. don't want somebody telling me what I have to believe, mm -hmm. but narrative is a way that I can figure that out without science or religion mm -hmm. or something like this saying this is how the world works just believe us right narrative says this is how you should act yeah and well the results will speak for themselves yes and and mythology would be the distillation of many morals of many stories learned across time kind of condensed as we said in the last episode into very compressed data packets right mm. um and so you're, I'm reminded here too, Peterson often cites David Hume, you can't get an ought from an is, right? So empirical reality by your testing hypotheses, well, we can't d disprove, just becomes science, empirical science, right? This what is, but that can't tell us what we should do about it, right? There, there has to be this ethical, moral dimension to human action. And so these stories uh, seem to contain a lot of that information that we've gathered across human history mm. and in very tight containers. Yes. And, and a little more on the odd from, from is point here is, is that 
mythology and narrative do not do that at all. Mm -hmm. They they don't say you ought to do this. Right. They say here is an example of somebody doing something. Yes. Because mythology here's, has, here's what happened, right? You kind of exactly. choose the path. You can be the hero or the villain, right? You can choose path. Yeah. 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 And and it's also I think I said something similar last time. It's up to you to decide, mm -hmm. right? Do you want to listen? Mhm. Mm and so and so it it gives the individual all the choice in the world, mm -hmm. right? And and that's the that's the brilliant part about this because what I love about maps of meaning and j just this whole entire narrative journey thing mm -hmm. is that it parallels so well with praxeological thinking and and taking that even one step further to some logical conclusions of being a praxeological thinker or a mythological thinker is is that here are some ways we can act in the world mm -hmm. and a lot of people are figuring that stuff out mm -hmm. but i think there is a little bit less coming at it from from this side this perspective because dr peterson made a big splash a few years ago and by the way i got the timeline slightly wrong in the last episode it, uh, it was 2017 or something mm -hmm. like that that mm -hmm. I, I first uh first found out about him but but anyway it doesn't matter so much <laughs> the um the main thing was he made a big splash and all this, but I, I don't see a whole ton of people going around uh, kind of spending time with with mythology and, and this sort of thing. And I'd, I'd love for that to there to be more of that because because I think it's it's a really great way for, for people to understand the lessons of the past. Yeah. It's what we have to yeah. understand what's come before us. For sure. And I, I mean... We see a little bit of that in Bitcoin circles, maybe like people returning to religion. Yeah, you know, um, it's definitely piqued my interest in the nature of mythology and storytelling. Mm. Um, but I agree with you that it's well, it's evidenced in the fact that we use the word myth to mean untruth, right? Oh, myth number one, myth number two. It's like that's it's a really bad term for untruth if myth is what we're saying it is. Um, okay, so. The meta mythological cycle of the way. Yeah, maybe let's let's concretize this a little bit. And and we're we're skipping. And if I jump, if I skip ahead too quickly, let me know. I'm no, no, no. Following an outline plus the book here. All good, all good. The 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 main thing, the reason why I kind of flagged that one, what we're skipping over, just just for for reference here, it's not that this stuff isn't important. It, it, actually, a lot of this is describing this problem mm -hmm. that that Peterson identified. He's got some Jung quotes, some Nietzsche quotes mm -hmm. that describe that we have gotten rid of mm -hmm. meaning that mm -hmm. that that they have that that they have identified mm -hmm. that we well it's the the famous Nietzsche quote God is dead and we've killed him right and, and we'll never find enough water to wash away all the blood yeah yeah I think we might even just have it here um it's uh God is dead God remains dead and we have killed him how shall we the murderers of all murderers comfort ourselves what was holiest and most powerful of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives who will wipe this blood off us. What water is there for us to clean ourselves? Yeah, it's, it's, mm. it's a powerful quote, but completely misunderstood, right? Yes, completely. And people think Nietzsche is some kind of morbid atheist or something. Um, but it's a it, it, he's talking about the collapse of a meaning-making system, basically. Mm. I think, I don't know. No, no, my my interpretation is exactly the same, and and I think that's what what Peterson is yeah. getting at here is that is that yeah it, it, that Nietzsche identified what the problem was yes. that 
that we had gone from, like another quote of his, when one gives up Christian belief, for example, one thereby deprives oneself of the right to Christian morality, mm. right? Right, right, right. So, and the, and the thing was here, I mean, in, in the historical context, it's, it's nothing compared to now what your religion was back in the 1890s or something, mm-hmm. right? Like, the the degree of irreligion today is most of the Western world is yeah. is irreligious. Yeah. And and even if there are people who are, say, culturally Christian and maybe even go to church mm-hmm. on Sunday just because their family does or something mm-hmm. like that, they're not acting religiously. Right. They're not acting like they believe the things. And we touched on this again last time a little bit. I my my background was 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 in Christianity and mm-hmm. and I went through a couple of phases of being out of touch with that. Mm-hmm. And now I'm in a place where I'm, I'm, I no longer consider myself Christian. I'll, I'm, I'm open enough about that, mm-hmm. but I appreciate it vastly more mm-hmm. than I used to. And, and so the, I mean, the, one of the side effects of digging through all this stuff, right. Is that, is that belief has gotten harder for me mm-hmm. in a kind of a literal way, but in the mythological, mm. in the metaphorical way has, has grown and so and so i i believe this stuff way more than i used to but i'm I'm not a literal christian by the definition i don't think yeah metaphorical is a good word actually um we touched on this maybe last time i don't recall but uh another book that's really struck me recently is metaphors we live by and it just describes how all of our language all of our terminology our phrases it's it's metaphorical in its development uh you know, from the, from words, you know, like the word understand, it means to stand beneath, to gain a deeper perspective. Or when you say something like, I'm running in the race, well, you're not actually in a race. That's a container metaphor, right? That we're using to describe a situation where I'm participating in a race. And so when you start to think metaphorically, like you hear it in all of our language, all of our words all the time, you know, you hear it in all of our language. It's not actually in our, you know, it's a can- yeah. container metaphor. Yeah. So this mythology is like a, the container of all of our collective metaphorical knowledge in a way. Mm. And so when you say that your belief, it's not like your your faithfulness as a Christian may have declined, but your respect for the nature of human cognition within the framework of these metaphorical systems is increasing, right? It's like your the best analogy I know is like looking at human cognitive source code right Hmm. like this is yeah this is how we work this is how our brains work this is how we developed here's how the the mental you know trans here's how the mental informs the praxeological right the belief informs how we act yeah um a lot of it's just contained inside of these stories so yeah i mean maybe maybe this is actually a, a good cue since you kind of brought up the neurological side of it the the Second part of chapter two on all of this neurological stuff is the part that I think is going to be hardest for us to actually cover mm-hmm. in in this series mm-hmm. and where to put it in and all this. Mm. The only point that I that I think I'll just say about it here is that he's got receipts. Yeah, he's got receipts, right? And and I think I think <laughs> it's at least a point where I say I I take his word for it and I take his <laughs> impeccable sourcing yeah. as well for it. Uh, but there's some fascinating stuff in that point, and and, and I think just the the main piece, just at this stage right here, is yeah. that there is a psychological grounding to this stuff, and there's there's a neurological grounding, like the way the brain works yeah. is is entirely adapted to this 
system. Yes. The system of dealing with the world we know. Yes. And the world we don't know. Right. So there, there are lots of words used in this book and that we use to describe these terms, mm -hmm. but it's the category of the known and the unknown, mm -hmm. order and chaos. Mm -hmm. That's that's about it. So, I mean, I, I think I think we will hit the the neurological part and really yes. dig into it at some point. But at, at least we can say that that there is a grounding in this stuff. Yeah, that's yeah, awesome. yeah. It's not just mythology the whole way through. He's got the neuro <laughs> neural architectural receipts. I guess you might say. Um, okay, the which gets us back to the way, right? Which is, I guess, to somewhat somewhat of a prelude to the neurological stuff he there is an argument that the right hemisphere of the brain which is traditionally associated more with creativity like people that are left-handed tend to be more creative open-minded etc that's more associated with novelty and chaos and the left hemisphere of the brain which is when you're right-handed tends to be more uh reductionist um um what else would we say here? Well, it's it's pattern to handle what we know. That's right. So basically, yeah, known, unknown, or explored territory, unexplored territory. And the way, in the Taoist sense, is like the mediation between these two domains. You got it. And and I mean, the, the reason I flagged this is basically we can we can formalize all of the aspects of this in one image. And and uh, the, the thing about, what page about is that, this, sir? 15 and or 17. Got it. Yeah, and and the one of the great parts about this book is that there's a sequence of of yeah, figures mm -hmm. that build upon each other every time. They might look exactly the same on first glance, but really they've they've built some element mm -hmm. each time. So yeah, I would really encourage anyone listening to this to to actually look at the the book if if you get a copy and uh, all this. So so the the first of these main figures is, is actually figure one is the domain and constituent elements of the known and the reason i mentioned that one specifically before the cycle of the way is that we first have to kind of understand what are the elements of the known before we talk about this intermediation between the, mm -hmm. the unknown mm -hmm. so the known at least what's being put forward here is what is what should be and how we should act Mm -hmm. So we have this present form. That's what is. That's exactly the state now. Mm -hmm. It's the felt uneasiness, the unbearable present, mm -hmm. something like that. Then what should be is our image of the ideal future. And the, the key point here is that it's our image. Mm -hmm. It's what we know, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no point in having... Uh, an image of something that you can't comprehend yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, I say no point. What what I really should have said is you, you can't conceive of something that you don't know. Right. It, it, it's a little subtle, but it, it, it really is important here that this is all elements of what we know. It, even though there is the physical sense, there is also this mental projection of what is the ideal and we know Yes, that. right. So then the point becomes how do we get there? And that's how yes, it, yes. So there, there. That's a subtle difference here because you're projecting a vision onto the unknown, right? What should be? It's not something that's actually out there. It's your own projection. Um, just on the point of metaphors, actually, I found one of my highlights here that's very relevant. 
Peterson write, and this will give you an idea of kind of the density of the writing in this book too. It's very verbose, very dense. Um, I'm on page 15. Peterson writes, the word way is a good example of the extent to which language is built on a series of metaphorical analogies. The most common meaning of way in English is a method or manner of procedure, but method and manner imply some sequential repetition. And the repetition brings us to the metaphorical kernel of a road or path. In the Bible, way normally translates the Hebrew derek and the Greek hodos. And throughout the Bible, there's a strong emphasis on the contrast between a straight way that takes us to our destination and a divergent way that misleads or confuses. So, um, and he goes on to write towards the end of that same passage, the Tao can, after all, the Tao being the way, can, after all, be to some extent characterized. The way is specifically the way of the valley, the direction taken by humility, self-effacement, and the kind of relaxation or non-action that makes all action effective. So the yeah the first part of that I was just reading to kind of reaffirm the metaphorical point I was trying to make earlier and um, and this idea of the way it's like it was it's uh, synonymous with heaven right it's like the the proper mode of being the right orientation to the world uh, which you know he says here involves humility self-effacement kind of relaxation or non-action um there's a reverence here for just how big and complex reality really is and how limited we are in dealing with it that i think is um, a core component of of proper action you might say right yeah proper action i like that mm -hmm. term i like that term because what i'll get into a bit later is is even that that when we're faced with something when we're faced with intentionally going out to explore the unknown mm -hmm. we have to choose between an infinite number of possibilities mm -hmm. on on how to act mm -hmm. right and so the the all of the inputs that we have are sensory inputs and our experiences of what things mean around us mm -hmm. are all the things that go into deciding how to act mm -hmm. and we can act in a way that's very improper mm -hmm. against the way doing things that are only satisfying in the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, it's, it's great. I love that it gets into a little bit of kind of low time preference. Right. Right. Um, but the, the point about proper action. Yeah. I agree, I agree with that because it, it's that there is nothing that says that any of this stuff is how everyone has to act. You must act this way. Right. But if you do, maybe it's going to be better than acting a different way. Yeah, and there's no guarantee of success here either if you follow this. It's just like this is going to give you your best chance of mm. getting what you want, basically. You know, for instance, if you are arrogant or totalitarian in your knowledge, you're like this is the way things are and you're not willing to learn, it's very likely reality is going to smack you at some point, right? Because the reality is the future is unpredictable. You can't know everything. Um, so what's the right or proper approach? Well, it's humility. It's self-effacement. It's the willingness to learn from mistakes, things like that. 
And the, that learning from mistakes, I think, is the descent into chaos, right? Occasionally you step out of the known, you fall into the unknown. Um, but that's like, it's part of the journey. It's, it's, it's um, an unavoidable part of the journey. You got it. And, and maybe we can formalize this uh, a, a little bit here, just, just so that what we're, we're saying makes sense along a, a mm. consistent thread here, that anything that isn't in the domain is in the known mm-hmm. is by definition part of the unknown. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't necessarily always mean that it's the worst to be in that unknown realm. Right. So the, the way is how we interact with the chaos of the unknown. Yes. But you can have day-to-day stuff. This is, this is actually jumping into the three levels of analysis. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe it makes some sense to just quickly, quickly uh, say what those are. That there's, there's normal life is one way of thinking about this stuff. Because we can all, I think, relate to how this would work on a day-to-day level. Uh, and, and there's some examples of, of, of that going forward a bit here. Then there's the neuropsychological stuff, and then there's the mythological mm-hmm. way of thinking about it. But in the, the everyday life, just the, the reason I'm mentioning that part is that we all go through life running into little obstacles that are surmountable. Mm-hmm. I'll give an example is that when I came here to Lugano, my phone plan, I thought it worked throughout all of, of Europe, but apparently in Switzerland, it doesn't. And I don't have any internet when I'm not on Wi-Fi right mm-hmm. now. And you know what? I've got to adapt to that. I've got to mm-hmm. make sure I'm on Wi-Fi. I, I couldn't talk to uh, the gentleman uh, outside in the, uh, making sure I wasn't somewhere I wasn't supposed to be mm-hmm. because he didn't speak English and so I couldn't pull up my translation app. Mm. Right. And, and so, yeah, it's, it's just these, these little, these little things that get in your way. But yes. it's not a catastrophe for me. I, I can handle mm. that. The example given in the in the chapters is someone who's trying to make it to a, a business meeting. Uh-huh. Uh, a business meeting and just little things keep getting in the way. Your elevator doesn't work or uh, you, someone is walking slowly in front of you. Things yeah, like that. Yeah. They're, they're little things, but they're not catastrophic. They don't send you into disintegration and reintegration, right. which is which is really the main story is how we deal with these catastrophic events and going out into the Mm -hmm. realm of the chaotic. Yeah. So they can be as small as your tiny mistakes, right? Like we mentioned leaving this phone in the other room last time. Um, or it can be as, as major as a natural disaster, right? You know, who knows, like any form of the unknown suddenly manifesting itself. And, um, I wanted, I didn't want to gloss over because I noticed you brought up the four myths earlier and I see that now on the bottom of page 16. I don't know if we should bring those up. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the four myths, the, the exact thing that he's saying here is that uh, the central notion of the way underlies manifestation of four more specific myths or classes of myths. Myths de- describing a current or pre-existent stable state a paradise or a tyranny. That's an interesting one that mm-hmm. we'll dig into later. Myths describing the emergence of something anonymous, unexpected, threatening, and promising. Again, another thing that's going to be interesting to dig into mm-hmm. what those mean there. Myths describing the dissolution of the pre-existent stable state into chaos. And myths describing the regeneration of stability. Mm-hmm. So those those last two are like the uh, a 
bigger level of change mm-hmm. and a bigger level of the unknown. Uh, so these four classes are, are what he describes as meta mythology. Right. The other thing, and to echo, well, to add to what you were saying earlier, the descent into the chaos or the unknown is not necessarily a bad thing. And it's actually, uh, again, an unavoidable part of the journey. It's not only where all threat resides, right? Threat is, it lives in the unknown, but it's also where all novelty lives. So if you're going to discover anything new or create something new, you have to go into the unknown. So it's, there's a, we have like an ambivalent feeling towards it, I guess, that it can be both exciting and intimidating at the same time in different contexts. Yeah. I I like to pronounce that ambivalent to, to, to kind of emphasize that we're talking about, you get really two things whenever you encounter something unknown. And I, I think, uh, I probably can't pull it up quite immediately, but, but the, the point is that it's threat Mm -hmm. or it's hope. Yeah. And so when you come up with something that's kind of against your plan, right? If you're just churning away, churning away, Mm -hmm. maybe you've got some idea of getting to an eventual goal after however much time, right? Mm -hmm. But then, then that's going to take however much time, months, years, whatever, but then maybe an opportunity comes up and you can seize it and that's hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. So the... It's, it sounds bad. Chaos, the unknown, sounds like a place you want to actively avoid, but you actually need to step courageously closer to it to actually move forward, right? Yes. And also, you're, we should also mention that the unknown is, I've said unavoidable, but it's all also ineradicable, right? Like Peterson often uses the term the horizon of the future. Like it's coming at you all the time. Even if you sit as safe and still as you perfectly can in a fortress, the world's still moving, time is still moving forward. Um, you're going to deal with the unknown no matter what. So again, this is like descriptive of what it's like and, and not just saying, uh, again, not prescriptive, this is what you should do. This is just saying as a descriptive, descriptive account of how it works and what we have learned to do about it. I, I I love that you you describe it like that, and it's it's a perfect mapping to how I understand this this book generally is mm-hmm. that it it is just describing the way how things work, mm-hmm. and it's describing a way how things work that might be a little bit different to what we understand. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I found the the ambivalent nature of novelty uh, in here, page forty four, if you if you mm-hmm. like, but it's 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 the idea that novelty, any kind of novelty, is dealt with as either promise or threat. Mm. And promise creates hope, the emotion hope, mm-hmm. and threat creates anxiety, yeah. emotion anxiety. And so the the thing about this, and there's a there's another there's another figure on the next page here that really shows that we have this concept of what is this unbearable present and what should be this mm-hmm. ideal future. But the way of getting there is going through this constant loop of planning, mm-hmm. a planned sequence of behavior that is constantly running into these obstacles or these changes. Either it's going to be something that is promising or it's going to be something that's threatening. Mm -hmm. And we deal with that and either we can continue with the sequence because whatever happened didn't set us off the the plan Mm -hmm. or we have to generate or choose a new sequence. And at at, at this point, it sort of turns into a little bit of that, that, um, 
dealing with having to choose these new sequences, these unpredicted outcomes. This is a big problem in society these mm-hmm. days, people not being able to, to deal with any kind of threat, anxiety, this sort of thing. And uh, I like that this is kind of a description of how that works, basically. Yeah, it's, I think if you frame it like that, then you don't have to have, you don't have to add to the natural, like it's going to happen. You're going to miss the mark, right, all the time, make mistakes, fall into the unknown. If you add to that unnecessary, you know, dismay or anxiety or just like, uh, woe was me kind of attitude, you're just making it worse, right? What is that quote about? worrying being like a rocking chair gives you something to do but it doesn't get you anywhere fast i like that you know it's not you have to learn to almost embrace it it's like okay you're going to feel the fear well what is what do you do with that well you respond to it productively and by being courageous and accepting it for what it is and try to learn your lessons and take the next step forward because again there's not there's not a choice right it's like you're constantly going to be faced with the unknown dealing with it um you can deal with it intelligently or you can deal with it um, in, a, in a negative emotional, with negative affect, let's say. Mm. And that doesn't serve you or anyone around you for that matter. So um, I think it's, it's what's useful is like getting the framing of this, knowing that all everyone goes through it. It sort of makes it more uh, digestible, I guess, and like dealing with, with the vagaries and uncertainties of life. Mm. Yeah, another one of, of Dr. Peterson's uh, uh, common stories on this on this topic is is dealing with people who have major fears phobias and and helping them through that and and says the result of this is people don't become less afraid that's right they become braver yeah exactly right and so that, yeah that is the lesson yeah is that dealing with this understanding that this is something that as you say everyone goes through yeah exactly yeah yeah and he, like um like for me, public speaking, you know, when you first get up there, everyone, most people have that feeling, the anxiety. But I've eventually found that if you can reframe that as like the energy from the crowd, like the excitement you have to be in front of the crowd, just that simple shift in perception. It's the same feeling when you get up there, but if you just frame it differently, all of a sudden you're much more productive with it. And um, I don't know, those things just always seem to be really useful to me. It's also... Uh, the story of uh, a friend of mine and she was like, she knew she had contracted food poisoning. She The symptoms were starting to set on. So she's telling her sister like, look, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to get the chills. I'm going to do this. I might have these symptoms. Just stay with me until the doctor comes, whatever. And the sister had never dealt with someone that had food poisoning. And so she went through all of these sequence of horrible symptoms that come with food poisoning but because she had given the knowledge to her sister in advance, her sister wasn't having all this anxiety. It's like she had she had the proper framing for what was going to happen, so she could you know walk through the situation responsibly and intelligently with her. So it's like that framing is like sort of what's being provided here. It's just here's how life works. <laughs> here's the the known and the unknown. You're going to descend and redescend and disintegrate and reintegrate, and it just makes life more livable, I guess. Yeah, and, and the the funny thing about that story too that I, I see there as well is she's actually taking this this thing that's that's negative and taking ownership of it and making it known, mm-hmm. right? Taking it out of this domain of the unknown and and making it known and less scary, as you say. That's mm-hmm. that's that's so interesting. And and the funny thing too about this is that that 
when we deal with unknown things, unexpected outcomes, something like that, there really needs to be some level of understanding of what is the actual consequence here. This this goes into the entire balance of things section, but mm-hmm. but basically things can be good or bad and they can be degrees of good and bad. Mm-hmm. And properly framing, what is the degree of bad if something is negative happens? That's super important as well because it's not useful to think about every single negative action as being something catastrophic, right? Oh, of course. It's just deal with it, right? Yeah. In, in the public speaking example you had, what, what's the worst that can happen if, if, if yeah. you uh, don't remember what you were going to say or whatever yeah. whatever it is, right? Like, well, what's the worst that's going to yeah. happen? You know, yeah. it's, it's not like the end of the world, right? Well, that's a good, a good example too. It's like asking yourself what's the worst that could happen before any decision. And um, y- yeah, I think, Typically, it's less than death, <laughs> and if it is death, and you have accepted that you're mortal and you're going to die, then it's not all that bad. So just deal with life courageously. Mm. Yeah, it's a great way of putting yeah. it. If you are a business owner or manager, you should know these three numbers: thirty-six thousand, twenty-five, and one. Thirty-six thousand is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, which allows you to streamline accounting, financial management, human resources, and more. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days rather than weeks, and to drive down cost. And finally, one, because your business is one of a kind. So with NetSuite, you get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. NetSuite is everything you need all in one place. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash whatismoney. That's netsuite.com slash whatismoney to get your free KPI checklist. Again, netsuite.com slash whatismoney. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, iCoin Technology iCoin has just released a sleek new hardware wallet. Looks like a mini iPhone, a little touch screen and camera on it. Uh, The device has no Wi-Fi, no cellular connection, no GPS. It's a strictly physically cold hardware wallet. Uh, Like I said, it's got a high-res 3-inch touch screen. It's got a camera for air gapping the wallet. Uh, It's got optional Bluetooth compatibility. And it's a really a, a brand new UI, UX experience for a hardware wallet, making it very accessible, easy to use, not intimidating. And as we always talk about on this show, the only way you can truly own your Bitcoin is by having it in self-custody. So you need a device like iCoin Wallet to truly own your Bitcoin. Go to iCoinTechnology.com today and use promo code BITCOIN23 for 30% off of this new sleek hardware wallet. And maybe we should jump back to so that we actually kind of uh, uh, can can put this chapter one to uh, to bed and not have to yeah. revisit it so much. What yeah. page are you going to? Well, we had uh, the the seventeen there, and that's kind of the end of the the chapter one. But what I what I want to sort of end with here is is just a, a underlining, uh, I guess, of that the the last quote I have from this is that the known. Our current story protects us from the unknown, from chaos. So, th- mm-hmm. so that maps exactly onto the story you just told about food poisoning. 
which is to say it provides our experience with determinate and predictable structure. Chaos has a nature all of its own. That nature is experienced as affective valence, not as objective property. So right. this, I think, segues us or ties us into, we've kind of covered now this this valence thing. The thing that that everything actually means is is something good or bad. And, mm-hmm. and by taking this, anything that's in the domain of the unknown and making it known is is how we deal with that so yeah what's the other term he uses we're like informational foragers right we're constantly Mm. probing the unknown and trying to expand the known um just to read one tiny excerpt here that i think presages a lot of what he goes into much later in the book uh this was just back on page 17 he writes christian morality can therefore be reasonably regarded as the quote-unquote plan of action whose aim is re-establishment or establishment or attainment, sometimes in the hereafter, of the kingdom of God or the ideal future. So there's this, again, this connection between like praxeology and mythology in some real interesting way that they're both describing the the non-material domain, the realm of the form of action. And um, I think that's why... You, you know, I reflect on a book like Honest Money by Gary North. Like mm. it describes what the Bible has to say about money, and it turns out it agrees with what Mises has to say about money. You know, I don't think that's a coincidence. Um, and again, just points to like maybe the practical or pragmatic use value of you know religion or mythology more general, um, as evidenced by stories contained in the Bible and and other other religions. So. Yeah, to take that even one step further is is that what is the point of knowing this structure? Mm-hmm. What's the point of it? And to me, the the point is to to always have that framing mm-hmm. to to decrease the the difficulty of dealing with threat mm-hmm. by by understanding that okay, this is I, like I don't go through life thinking this co- stuff consciously by sure. by knowing this. Sure. I don't. But but it it does make it easier to kind of understand that that going through life in a, in the the mode of trying to accomplish something yeah. and then dealing with the unexplained uh, the un the uh, um the unanticipated mm-hmm. uh, going through life like that becomes I think a lot easier and the just the the general point on this is that I think by understanding stories uh, by by taking them in and taking them to heart is is how people can, on a general level, understand this stuff better and and internalize it. Because again, it would be crazy to think about that constantly. No, no, it's, consciously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. These are again, it's kind of like the source code, right? You're not really actively or consciously running it, um, and it d- definitely helps you embrace your mortality and just the impermanence of life. Right, that this thing is a constantly flowing structure, and so if you really accept that and understand that, well, then when horrible things do happen, I think you can deal with them better. You can just be more responsible, which is obviously a big theme that Peterson beats on. Mm. I have a lot more uh, and a lot much easier time discarding things. Yeah, letting go. Yeah, yeah. yeah that this this thing doesn't change my strategic mm-hmm. goal. 
it might mean I have to deal with something mm-hmm. for a day. Yeah. But it, it doesn't change that I'm aiming to build a better life for my family. Yeah. It, build a better world somehow through whatever I can do to accomplish it, finding the best ways to accomplish mm-hmm. that. Those strategic goals don't need to get affected by yeah. little bumps in the road. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess another way of saying this for me is like it lends itself towards stoicism in a way or, or it aids or enhances stoicism. It's like just seeing things from the bigger perspective, it, you know what's coming, right? So you're, it, you're putting it in the known once again, right? You're the whole, you're framing this whole cycle of dealing, of interfacing between the known and the unknown into the frame of the known. So it helps you deal with it more courageously, more responsibly. Mm. Yeah, and, and cor- the courage there as well, uh, responsibility, yeah, I, I, like, I, like that, I like that framing of it as well. It's, it's that uh, by acting this way, it's another one, of, another one of his phrases, that's what I was getting at, the, the courage, responsibility, is that to think of the highest good you can conceive of, to aim at the mm-hmm. highest good you can conceive of, I think that's the the end point of all of this. Yes. What is the highest good that you can conceive of? Mm-hmm. And um, it, it it his it, from his lectures, the example he gives is like Pinocchio wishing upon a, a mm-hmm. star. I, I think that's that's kind of kind of cute. It's, yes. But it's it's real. It's it's that put the end goal there, and then then to bring it into the praxeological perspective, it it's low time preference said another way. Yeah. Right. Like let's let's aim for the longer term thing. Let's aim aim for the high goal. Like the thing of highest for... value. Right. Yeah. 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 I think low time preference is almost equivalent to saying high value preference. And Bitcoiners share that we're all aimed at the <laughs> destruction of central banking, I guess, as like our, our North Star. Um I had a I had a, a good good friend of mine even call my brother his name's izzy who who uh describes it as the orange glowing light mm. and i think that's the best way of describing that that i've ever heard yeah well and i actually was inspired by peterson's work when he said aim at the highest moral aim and actually he it's not he didn't originate this this isn't mm. carl jung carl jung said it was an adequate substitute to clinical psychology to just try and set your moral aim as high as you possibly could and then work assiduously towards that aim so you don't need to go to, you don't need to come see me. Like just go pick your high moral aim and work your ass off and your life will sort of, you know, get integrated behind that. Um, and that, that was inspiring for me. Just like, oh, well, what is the biggest problem in the world? Well, my perspective is it's the central bank. So let's go do what we can about that. No, I can, I can see that. And, and I can see that you were inspired by that. You had that quote right there. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, one last thing, just to, this is another way I've thought about the, the importance of responsibility. So, I don't. This is just like a, I don't know, an anecdote that I think I made up. I don't know if I heard it somewhere or not. But if you imagine you're sitting in a room and you're looking out a window, and all of a sudden a big meteor strikes the Earth. Oh, this is bad, right? Like giant explosion, shockwave coming towards me. Um, the quicker you can shift from oh man, I'm scared, this is really bad, like that fear state. And the quicker you can switch into, 
just taking responsibility for it. You didn't actually do it, obviously. The meteor just fell from the sky and hit the earth. You're not the cause of it. But if you take responsibility for the consequences of it, like, oh, this thing's really bad. Let me shift into action, right? Start putting plans into action and whatever, gathering food and water, trying to help people, get in the car, get the kids safe, whatever the thing is, whatever the things you can do in your immediate environment to intervene and improve the situation, the better the world actually becomes. Like the quicker you can get out of fear and the quicker you can get into responsibility, the better everyone's life in the world is. So it's that, right? Like this modeling of the interface between the known and the unknown, when you the unknown does hit you and it will hit you, we're all getting old, we're all gonna get sick at some point or someone in our life, you know, it's bad stuff is coming. The quicker you can shift gears from that fear or woeful state into a responsible, purposeful state of action, the better your life is, the better the life of those around you. So it's like, this is a very useful toolkit. It's not, we're not just like blabbering on about mythology and whatnot. Um, so I just want to try to make, bring that point home with like an example. I, I, I love that, that the whole thing about responsibility and, and maybe as a, a small aside is that when I was, when I was discovering all this stuff at the same time, the, the other man that was very influential on me around this time is Jocko Willink. Mm, You're yeah. familiar. Yeah, yeah, of course. And he's got his uh, extreme ownership yes. um, book. And uh, it's a bit different just to, just to say that, but the way I like to think about that, because the, the entire thesis of that book is take ownership to the extreme level, take yeah. ownership responsibility for everything in your life. Right. And I would maybe say that's that's going a little too far for the average person, mm -hmm. but it is absolutely something to aspire to. Jocko is a Navy SEAL. His his co-author Leif Babin is a is a Navy SEAL, and they they did some pretty incredible things. Mm -hmm. That book and and the follow up book, the Dichotomy of Leadership. They're they're like kind of business books that have mm -hmm. that have a a flavor of naval Navy SEAL stories, and so it's 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 something else. But the way I liked to kind of describe it was that Jocko was the man of action to what Doctor Peterson was thinking about the entire time, mm -hmm. and Doctor Peterson has acted in the world yeah. since becoming on the the stage yeah. somehow. Yeah. But but Jocko was kind of the inspiration to me to to try and make this stuff a little bit more concrete and and helped me to more concretize that. I, I definitely went through a little period of uh, doing jujitsu and mm. uh, cleaning up my diet and exercising more and stuff. And I think I think every young man kind of needs something like that. Maybe not exactly that same path, but yeah. it's helpful. No, definitely. Um Peterson often say, like, you should just experience what it's like to work as hard as you can at some point in your life. I think you should really should do that, and you should do it in every domain, right? You should push yourself intellectually at some point. You should push yourself physically. You should push yourself spiritually. And just see, just test your own boundaries and see what it's like to, to go to the edge. Um, definitely makes you stronger. It does. Yeah. And this is maybe the entire other point about this is that because this first chapter I think again is just setting the stage here of what this is actually talking about but the results of what this can do is yeah help to make this frame of responsibility as you say more concrete mm -hmm. and 
yeah, th- this just the entire thing of what this this book sets sets in front. And so, I mean, it, we've got a lot of details in in front of us as we dig into it a little bit further. But yeah, that's that's what the opening chapter to me is is talking about: it's setting the stage of this order and chaos, and yeah. that life is all about intermediating between. The yes, two. yes, and again, the, he's drawing that language from Taoism. Right, but he's also talking about he'll get into Christianity later in the book. So there's interesting parallels between these different wisdom traditions talking about kind of the same structure. Yeah, and the parallelism is the part that drove it home for me. Yeah, actually, was right. that was that this is something found yes across culture consilience, right? Yeah, yeah, and and we touched on it again the the history of religious ideas, Eliade. Mm-hmm. That's like. It's key to have all of these different examples. There's a there's a Jordan Campbell uh, series. Uh, the name is escaping. Just Campbell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, yeah. The, the, the the four. No, I mean the the name of the books. The the the. Um, Power there's four books. four of them that that were uh, primitive mythology. Uh, there's four of them. Oh, I don't know this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not not Iliad. No, it's a, it's another it's another kind of similar set of set of uh, books though. That okay. it's a compilation of of mythologies there. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. So it, it, this is all just to say that there's there's lots of these compilations of different ways of the the mythologies kind of aligning yeah. here, and that's the point that drives this all home to me. Is yeah, that this is something kind of universal. It's it's not anything that that was just a revelation one day. It's yeah. Yeah, this is not one guy's arbitrary writing. This is like collective human wisdom. Yes. Yep. So that kind of sets the stage to kind of where we can go from here. I think. Okay. Do we go to chapter two now? I, I think we can. Yeah. Okay. At least at least introduce it. Let's do it. Yeah. So, well, I'll go ahead. Is that the the chapter? Well, no, actually, I'll let you do that. Uh, if I would do it, I would just read the opening yeah. okay. paragraph here. Um. You know, again, I can't say it better than Peterson himself. Peterson writes, human beings are prepared biologically to respond to anomalous information, to novelty. This instinctive response includes redirection of attention, generation of emotion, fear first, generally speaking, then curiosity, and behavioral compulsion, Cessation of ongoing activity first, generally speaking, then active approach and exploration. This pattern of instinctive response drives learning, particularly but not exclusively the learning of appropriate behavior. All such learning takes place or took place originally as a consequence of contact with novelty or anomaly. And so I have a little note here that I wrote my PDF, but um, I don't know if you've ever seen like a time lapse of a slime mold as it's growing. Uh, it just sort of like checks the edges. It's like just opportunistically throwing out these tendrils in different directions. And then when it finds like, I think it's sugar that it eats, you know, it, it'll collapse all the ones that didn't find sugar. And then it'll just mainline into the one, the opportunistic little sprout that it threw out that found sugar it'll pour all its resources into that one and then it'll start to spread from there so it's like we have these we're wired to like test the edges and experiment and figure things out and so that is that pushing into the unknown but with that 
enterprise comes a lot of loss, like 95% misses basically. But occasionally, you know, so there's a lot of threat, basically a lot of failure out there in the unknown, but occasionally you strike gold, so to speak. And that's where the novelty comes in. So in this gets like the writing of Taleb, he talks about the non cognitive intelligence of nature that it just does. It's sort of always spreading in that way. It's like placing its bets and then every now and then it hits on some food or it hits on some novelty and then boom, doubles down on that. And then that becomes explored territory. So like we are like that too, right? We're just constantly trying to expand and figure out which is the right way to go. Uh, and every, this isn't just a spatial domain, right? This could be a domain of innovation, a domain of ideas, a domain of social structures, whatever it is, constantly experimenting with new things, discarding what doesn't work, keeping what does work. Um, so yeah, that was my interpretation of the opening. This is the opening to chapter two, by the way, which is maps of meaning, three levels of analysis. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think it's great. The neuro neuropsychological part of this chapter is, is I think what most directly gets into what you just described, mm-hmm. the, the parts of how we as humans are actually adapted to this stuff because mm-hmm. everything has a nervous system. Every organism has mm-hmm. some kind of nervous system and ours is our brain and all of the nerves and the, the things that actually make us able to do things as mm-hmm. our nervous system, right? And our brain is adapted to this known unknown thing. Mm-hmm. There's, there's receipts there. Mm-hmm. And the thing about that is that we also have another way of explaining this stuff though. Mm-hmm. The thing that makes us different from the slime mold mm-hmm. is that we can talk mm-hmm. about our experiences. Mm-hmm. We can share what has worked and what hasn't worked right. with everyone around us. Yeah. And then that alters the behavior yes. of everyone around us. It's a great so, point. Which he articulates here. Peterson writes, creative exploration, I'm on page 20. Creative exploration of the unknown and consequent generation of knowledge is construction or update of patterns of behavior and representation such that the unknown is transformed from something terrifying and compelling into something beneficial or at least something irrelevant. The presence of capacity for such creative exploration and knowledge generation may be regarded as the third and final permanent constituent element of human experience in addition to the domain of the known and the unknown. So that generation of knowledge, that is what differentiates us from the slime mold, right? We can store it and talk about it in a way that uh, it cannot, I suppose. And... um yeah, it's interesting that create transforming something that is terrifying and compelling to something that is beneficial or at least something irrelevant. I think that's really interesting too. Because mm. if you can just automate away the thing to where you don't have to think about it anymore, right? There was some problem we were dealing with, but we just found a system that automatically solve that problem, then we don't have to think about it anymore. We free up our resources to deal with other problems, higher order problems. And this is one of the best quotes ever, but I can't say it perfectly, so I'll try to paraphrase it. Alfred North Whitehead, 
many people say that you should think before you act, but the precise opposite is true. Civilization advances by converting important operations into things we can do without thinking. I'm really butchering that, but that's kind of the gist of what he's saying. So I get it. The more we can we can add this automaticity to use a term that's used in um, some monetary history books, the more you can automate away your problem solving, the more you free up your cognitive and physical resources to solve higher order problems. So civilization is actually built in these layers of solving problems and ideally automating the solution of a problem, which is the same thing to say, to make it irrelevant, right? Once we, what, what's a good example here? Um, well, humans like to eat, right? So in most of our history, trying to feed ourselves, now we generate agricultural surpluses of 30 plus percent. Not saying the problem's completely gone, but I mean, the fact that you can walk into a grocery store and it's stocked full of food, that's a far cry from having to hunt and gather. So maybe that's not a perfect example, but. No, no, I like it though. It's a description that, of how technological advancement, the food's automatically there and waiting on you. Basically. Yeah. I know you got to go work a job and make money, but you walk into the grocery store and you have food from all over the world, right? Plants, animals, everything you want. So. Yeah. You know. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and the thing about that too, is that, is that the technology is something that can be reused, right? When someone discovers right. yeah. something, discovers it. Yeah. And and this is one of those ways of describing Bitcoin as a discovery rather than yes. an invention, and describing many things as discoveries. Yeah, it's now in the domain of human knowledge, and yes. all of humanity can benefit from it forever, forever, as long as we don't forget. <laughs> yeah, as no, no, but that's that's the key here. As long yeah. as we don't forget, right? Yeah, Be, because if if we as society one day. Uh, had the meteor or something like that or the electronic pulse and we lost all of the yeah. the human knowledge we could be back at the at the stone age and have to do it all over again right that's right yeah yeah definitely have to remember it and um but that the tremendous value of knowledge right that it is it just takes the one discovery and then the knowledge can spread super fast and be replicated and emulated by countless people that can all benefit from that one discovery. Uh, reminds me of the quote, a single candle can be used to light a thousand others, but its flame burns undiminished. So it's like the fire of knowledge. It's really, really what makes us human. Yeah, and and the way knowledge was transmitted before we had things like Writing, mm -hmm. computers, yeah. all this. Myth. Myth. Yeah. 100%. Exactly. The the OG internet. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> but but the what this gets into, just to bring this back to the three levels of analysis, because I, I think this chapter, we were saying offline a little bit, that this chapter is a little hard to, to tackle all on its own. Mm -hmm. In some ways, I think it should have either been three separate chapters, because three levels of analysis mm -hmm. talking about there or that chapter one and the first two parts of this chapter two should have been kind of merged together as one big uh setting the stage section mm -hmm. but the three levels of analysis to just say what they are because this is another um little bit of constructive criticism here is that i don't think it, the introduction actually 
properly introduced what these three levels mm-hmm. of analysis are. Yeah. He didn't exactly say them, but it's it's normal and revolutionary life, which we can yeah. they can do neuropsychological function and mythological. Uh, as you say, mythological representation. Mm-hmm. So so the the main thing about this here is that we can kind of divide the world into how we actually act, what mm-hmm. we do day to day. That's normal life. Then you have the level of analysis of the the physiological, neuropsychological aspect that, and and this to me is the is the receipts of why this actually is is the case. Mm-hmm. But the mythological bit is I I think what we're going to be dealing with with for most of the rest of this series because the mythological aspect is the entire rest of the book of the book, basically. Yeah. So I I think to get a little bit of a grasp on what the impacts of this stuff are for everyday life. That's good. Mm-hmm. Understanding that there are some receipts for this stuff. Mm-hmm. That's good. Mm-hmm. But what I what I think the the bulk of what this is going to be is describing how these narratives and myth structures map on to these other levels of analysis and bring that into the daily life. So I think yeah. that's the that's the point to make about why this structure actually makes some sense and that understanding that there is this underlying this underlying neuropsychological part to it and we can make a everyday life output from understanding this stuff yeah. then all of the mythological bit can actually become understandable yeah yeah i think that's a great approach one of my highest health priorities is keeping my brain in top shape to take care of my brain power i do many things such as striving to read write exercise and meditate daily one of the latest tools in my brain power toolkit is MindLab Pro. MindLab Pro is a nootropic supplement that is scientifically proven to enhance your brain power. When I take MindLab Pro, my mind feels like it has a better grip on the world. My thinking is more lucid and the articulation of my speech is much more clear. MindLab Pro has been tested in rigorous, double-blind, placebo-controlled human trials and has been proven to enhance brain power for users in every age group. MindLab Pro is an advanced formulation of 11 nootropic ingredients and is backed by research from 1,473 human trials conducted over a period of 32 years. So if you're looking to start enhancing your brain power, MindLab Pro is an excellent solution. Go to mindlabpro.com breedlove to start enhancing your brain power today. Again, that's mindlabpro.com breedlove. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is a Bitcoin-enabled alternative to legacy health insurance. Now let's face it, legacy health insurance is an absolute scam. Nobody can explain this better than the legendary comedian, Chris Rock. Insurance, you got to have some insurance. You got to, there's an insurance. They shouldn't even call it insurance. They should just call it in case shit. And I give a company some money in case shit happens. Now, if shit don't happen, shouldn't I get my money back? <laughs> so with CrowdHealth, instead of just paying premiums that you'll never see again, you can hold part of this pool of savings in dollars and in Bitcoin through CrowdHealth. And when you have a health event, you can draw against this pool of communal savings. So go to joincrowdhealth.com slash breedlove to learn more or sign up. Now I'd like to tell you about our sponsor, Wasabi Wallet. 
With Wasabi Wallet, you can receive, send, and store Bitcoin privately. In Wasabi Wallet, your transaction history and wallet balance are completely hidden. Wasabi Wallet is easy to use. All of its privacy features are built in by default, and it works with any amount of Bitcoin. Wasabi users can make CoinJoin transactions together with BTC Pay server users or Trezor Suite users. For BTC Pay server users, they can make payments directly inside of a CoinJoin. And for Trezor Suite users, you can make CoinJoins directly on a hardware wallet. These features result in the fee savings and security improvements for both sets of users. So go to wasabiwallet.io today to download the state-of-the-art Bitcoin privacy wallet. What then would we say about the normal and revolutionary life? Yeah, I think this one is... Is, is, this, where, is this where he goes into the business meeting? You yeah, got it. The business, okay. this, this chapter is pretty much just some examples and, and I, I mean... Just to just to, this one is the easiest I think for us to tackle mm -hmm. because because normal life maps directly onto the cycle of the the known mm -hmm. to to what we do when we're in the known. Normal life is what is how we should act towards what should be. Mm -hmm. It's it's what we're doing when we know what to do. Mm -hmm. But revolutionary life is when we had to deal with chaos, mm -hmm. and so the examples given you can you can use almost any example of mm -hmm. a, a real world uh, event. And he goes into this in terms of a, of a business meeting mm -hmm. and that's normal life, some obstacles to getting to a business meeting. Mm -hmm. And then revolutionary life is when you have to deal with something more chaotic. You deal with literally a revolution in your mind. Mm -hmm. His example is, is uh, losing a job. Mm -hmm. so, okay. Um, shall we dig into? Yeah. Yeah. If you want to, does he extend that one example into the revolutionary life? Yeah, yeah, I thought so. It, it, it's yeah. a little why it's it's a little tough to 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 uh, map this out directly, but but we can we can go through what the example is. Yeah, yeah. If you want to kind of walk through it, because you almost need that gateway into the mythological, right? You need to understand the prosaic before you get into the yeah the the deeper aspects of it. Yeah. So the the example given, and I'm I'm just going to paraphrase, is, yeah. is that is that there's someone who you he, he frames it as you are are going to a business meeting. Mm -hmm. You're in the the corporate structure, the nine to five, mm -hmm. the nine. Yeah, lovely. But but uh, that happens to be true for many people. Mm -hmm. There's a business meeting that that may have a a impact on the future, on mm -hmm. the goal. The goal being to climb the corporate hierarchy. Mm -hmm. In the, the 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 great thing about business, sort of uh, these days, is that business really it encapsulates the hierarchy of life. It kind of formalizes it. Really, mm -hmm. people have titles. People report to one another. Mm -hmm. It makes explicit what used to be mm -hmm. more implicit, right. right? But then in so 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 you you. Anyone going through the corporate game, playing the game of corporate worker, mm -hmm. is is trying to ascend some hierarchy. Mm -hmm. The end goal might not be CEO, but maybe something uh, pretty decent that mm -hmm. pays well, something like mm -hmm. that, enough to enough to uh, live a comfortable life, something mm -hmm. like that. Lambo, maybe. <laughs> but but the the main thing is is living in this corporate structure is is playing this corporate game yeah. and trying to advance and so 
okay, the scenario is there's a business meeting and this business meeting is going to have uh, an effect, positive or negative, on the ability to get to that goal. So, mm-hmm. so you, the individual, assigns importance to this meeting, this, this specific, somewhat mundane thing. If the meeting goes well, you're one step closer to your goal. Mm-hmm. If it does not go well, then that's a setback and mm-hmm. you might have to, to deal with things all over again, something mm-hmm. like that, tread old ground. And so the example given is leaving the office on the 27th floor. And in the, in the day and age, by the way, remote work and all this, this, this has kind of become a slightly dated, but you're in your office on the 27th floor and waiting by the elevator and the elevator fails to appear. Mm. And you didn't take this into account. This wasn't part of the plan. Usually the elevator comes within mm. a reasonable period of time. Mm-hmm. And so this isn't something you always have to take into consideration. Mm-hmm. It's it's fair to assume and in fact necessary to assume that daily life is going to proceed a certain way. Mm-hmm. So when an obstacle comes up, well, then you have to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the elevator didn't appear. Okay. Bleh. You can go take the stairs, mm-hmm. something like that. I don't know. There's some sort of maintenance or, or mm-hmm. something like that. So go take the stairs. All right, fine. Uh, you get to um, one stairway was closed, but the next one works. And so, okay, obstacle, obstacle, success. Mm-hmm. Obstacle, obstacle, success. You continue to run late, but you were a little bit early because you had some forethought. You see some innocent people on the street that an old lady with a with a cane, some kids mm-hmm. running across the street that just make it a little bit harder to get to the destination. You notice those things a little bit more, right? Because day to day, who cares about the people around you if if you don't have somewhere to be? It's like mm-hmm. they're, they're just other people mm-hmm. uh, going about their business, right? But if they're stopping something important and you've got some anxiety, right? Well, then maybe you notice. All of a sudden, the little kids are obstacles. <laughs> All they're, they're obstacles, yeah. exactly. So the the point is this gets to that that you, you make it to the the building of the meeting. It looks like you're going to be on time. And then something happens, a massive loud noise behind you. Sounds like a large vehicle hurtling over a small concrete barrier, like a curb. So the placement of this example is really interesting because the point of the story here, at the the phase of the story here, is that you've you've actually succeeded. You've made it to the meeting over the obstacles, and then you hear something that directs the attention away. Uh, something chaotic, potentially catastrophic. Mm -hmm. And so all attention goes to that suddenly. You have to deal with this unexpected occurrence because the consequences of this new occurrence, you think there's a car, truck about to hit you, Mm -hmm. that's life or death. Mm -hmm. So suddenly you're not dealing with a scenario that's only about getting to a meeting and some long-term strategic goal. It's suddenly about life or death. Yeah. So when it turns out to, it's just a truck hitting a pothole and some stuff mm-hmm. and it's the, the back of the truck mm-hmm. jumping around, suddenly everything's fine again. You can just ignore <laughs> it, right? So so it's it, this entire story is a description of just how, how things work in daily life and getting through these these obstacles. And the end of the story is something like making it into the meeting and everything 
going perfectly fine. And so mission accomplished for today, obstacles yeah. overcome, yeah. little things, nothing was catastrophic, even though there was a moment where you had to evaluate something catastrophic, yeah. right? Right. And, and a real catastrophe would come with the revolutionary analysis, which yeah. is the next example, but I'll pause. No, I just think it's funny how skittish, uh, we have to be skittish creatures, right? You hear the loud noise of the truck bumping behind you and, you know, all of a sudden your goal-directed action towards climbing the corporate ladder becomes irrelevant in that moment. You have to just totally suspend it and you're like, am I about to get run over by a truck? Okay, obstacle cleared or not an obstacle, you know, it's just a scare. And then you go back on path. So just another point being made that like these uh, actions or paths that we're pursuing, they're stacked, right? Like step one, survive, <laughs> you know, don't die. What is, Taleb says this in his books a lot, like never take risk of ruin as one of the, like the first um, tenet of surviving in financial markets is like never take risk of ruin, right? Never leverage your whole stack or anything like that. So you're immediately reduced to that concern in that moment where you hear the loud noise of the truck bumping. It's just um, interesting how he, you're going up and down the levels, I don't, not the levels of analysis, but just the levels of your own humanity, right? It's like, well, if I know I'm surviving and I've got some future, then I'll be concerned about climbing this corporate ladder. But all of a sudden, if my future might be off the table, I'm in this matter of life and death, well, then I'm just doing whatever I need to survive in that moment. Yeah, and the the funny thing about that, to to move ahead in the example a little bit, because it, it really it really ties in here, the, the continuance of the example to show what revolutionary life is, mm -hmm. is the character from this scenario gets back to his office after the meeting, mm -hmm. thinking it had gone well. Mm-hmm. And then he gets called into his boss's office and, and she says, well, actually, actually, some of these are a little bit funny. Some of these are a little bit funny. I've received a number of very unfavorable reports regarding your behavior at meetings. All of your colleagues seem to regard you as a rigid and overbearing negotiator. Furthermore, it has become increasingly evident that you are unable to respond positively to feedback about your shortcomings. Finally, you do not appear to properly understand the purpose of your job or the function of this corporation. Mm. Wow. Mm. Goes all the way, basically, right? Because if it had just been something to the effect of, we've been seeing some bad reports about your major meetings, right? Okay, fine. But not understanding your job or your function goes all the way to your understanding of life, yeah. basically. And so, and so, and so, Cutting to his identity, right? Yes, you know. yes, no. and and so the the effect is loss of job. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine, but I want to tie this back to briefly before going ahead into this hierarchy of needs thing that for many people losing a job is catastrophic, as in you don't know where you're going to get food in a mm -hmm. week, mm -hmm. right? Two weeks, something like that, mm -hmm. paycheck to paycheck, mm -hmm. but. But if, if we can somehow get around that so much of the planet is literally in that state, yeah. there, there are, um, I was just talking about this with, uh, with Yoni Appleberg, um, the, the, there's these, um, 
oh, what is it called? Income levels, mm -hmm. income levels that, that a certain part of the planet lives under $2 a day, about a billion people, something like that. Mm -hmm. A certain portion lives between two and $8 a day, about 3 billion, mm -hmm. something like that. Mm -hmm. Then eight to 32 and 32 up. Those are the, the mm -hmm. four levels. And, and the thing is the people under $2 a day, they can't save anything, right. anything. And they grow the food they eat and live in nothing. He explains much, much better than, uh, than I do is more well read on this. But the, the, the point is that there are so many people, right. Who literally had to take care of the basic necessities yeah. and have no way of going forward. Right? right. And so these stories like that, that we're talking about here, this is like a level of people that is, yeah. that is much more, uh, we're actually able to do some things with the world around us instead of just the subsistence thing. But to tie this back is that going from a state of being able to actually yeah. uh, maybe have some strategic goal and aim for that, going back down a level to having to deal with your immediate survival, yeah. well, that just completely can break someone, right? Yeah. Yeah. The the bottom falling out and dropping into chaos. And it's a good point to bring up because there's a very deep relationship between your material wealth, right? And your ability to pursue these higher order aims. If you have to worry about food and shelter or paycheck to paycheck, as you're saying, like it's really hard to set your sights at a, on a high moral aim, right? You're just worried about survival. And so there, we talked a lot, I talked about with Jimmy Song earlier today that, you know, when you start debasing money and stealing from people systematically, you're forcing them into more desperate situations. They're lowering their aims, right? They're just more concerned about basic survival rather than being able to accumulate savings and have some buffer against this chaos or uncertainty. So it's just very, there's a, wealth matters. Wealth matters. It's not just so I can look cool or drive a cool car or, go on fancy trips it also like frees me up to be a more civilized human and i just wish we had a deeper reverence for that in our socioeconomic structures you know like the idea of printing money and stealing from people is gonna somehow fix things is like no you're actually making these people more desperate you're you're creating pressures for populism and revolt and um uh, it just it just seems so self-defeating from a socioeconomic standpoint yeah and then to talk about it this way right yeah you you right. remove the need for people to descend into chaos yeah as often or as badly yes right exactly they have a buffer against chaos a buffer so, against chaos. so wealth can actually be like psychologically healthy right it can be preserving to your psychological integrity yeah yeah and it's it's all here yeah. it's all what we're talking about so yeah that's the normal versus revolutionary life. Normal is things are going as as usual. Revolutionary is having to deal with chaos. And I love the idea that maybe fixing the money can <laughs> keep us away from having to deal with chaos so often. Help us fix our psychological state a little bit. Um, this should be our stopping point for the day? Yes, it should. I think so. Okay. Hi, we both um, <laughs> Beautiful stuff. Uh, appreciate you doing this again. Great to do it in person versus on Zoom. Where can people find you on the internet? Yeah, I'm 
BTC Sudofin is my is my tag, my my Twitter handle, and I do the Freedom Footprint show with Knut Spahnholm, my way of contributing to the Bitcoin space these days. So yeah, that's where you can find me. Awesome. And Knut will be on tomorrow, so more to look forward to. Exactly. Thanks, Thanks again. <laughs>